Hello and welcome back to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. And today I am really excited about our guest. I've been reading this book and it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, our, our topic today is going to be the book, Jesus and John Wayne. And our, our guest this morning is the author, Kristen Kovis Dumay. And uh, Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay. Did I get your name right? You did. Perfect. Okay, nice, nicely done. That. Um, and so I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, um, I was recommended, uh, several people recommended this book to me. And I picked it up, and it, it is a page turner. I uh, could not put it down. It's absolutely fa- you, you've done a, a fantastic job um, with this. Um, and you know, I was kind of expecting a little different because people have built it to me as this is a book against Donald Trump. And so mm-hmm. I kind of read it with that anticipation, and found out no, 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 it's much more. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about uh, Trump here for a second, because I, I think a lot of people. I don't know if a lot of people, but some people are like me. And in 2016, found themselves like in a moment of whiplash. Uh, here I am. I came of age politically about in the 1990s or so. Uh, 1996 was my first election. And I proudly voted against Bill Clinton because yes. he's a draft dodger. He's an adulterer. You can't trust this man. And then I found myself in 2016 uh, in a party that was electing a man who had escaped the draft through deferment and was a serial adulterer and bragged about it. And all of a sudden this man is our standard bearer. And I thought, what in the world happened? And I assumed it was, well, it's, it's you know, to go back to Bill Clinton, it's the economy, stupid. And so Trump is a businessman and we need, and of course, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton, we, we could never have her. So this was an aberration. But as I'm reading this book, you're saying, no, this is not an aberration. This is a long time coming. This, yeah. this idea of a uh, militant white masculinity has been a part of evangelicalism really from the beginning. So can you kind of unpack that idea for us? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, kind of the same thing in, in 2016, I, I was watching very closely, uh, white evangelicals, uh, falling behind Donald Trump, support him, uh, in ever growing numbers. And, uh, it was actually in the the days after the access Hollywood tape released that, uh, things kind of clicked for me because years earlier I had started exploring this topic of white evangelical masculinity. So back in 2005, 2006, I spent a year researching it. And, uh, for a couple of reasons, I, I put the research aside. Um, I, I was really, honestly disturbed by what I was reading and deeply misogynistic militaristic teachings so much so that I really struggled to to come to terms with is this is this really mainstream evangelicalism that I'm looking at you know um, folks like uh, Mark Driscoll back in the early 2000s enormously popular books like wild at heart selling more than 4 million copies but it just felt so extreme and so I I wasn't quite sure and set it aside. And then it was in the, um, in the days after the access Hollywood tape release, actually that I, um, was hearing evangelicals, uh, defend their support for Donald Trump. And, and it clicked that, um, not only had we seen this before that we'd seen white evangelicals kind of rally around abusive leaders, um, abusers of power. 
in many cases, and I knew enough of that history, but the language that they were using to defend their support for Trump uh, reminded me so much of all that I had read in books on Christian manhood, right? We need a protector. We need a strong leader. We need a masculine leader. We need a ruthless leader who will do what needs to be done to protect faith, family, and nation, who will use violence to achieve order and to pursue righteousness. The language was just so similar. And so when uh, other evangelicals, especially the never Trump evangelicals and members of the media were saying, you know, how could evangelicals betray their values to vote for Trump? Uh, I knew that 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 didn't really capture what was going on. I knew that we didn't fully understand what those values were. And if we looked historically at family values evangelicalism, we could see that the assertion of white, uh, white Christian patriarchy was at the center of family values evangelicalism and this kind of militant masculinity. And as soon as we put that at the center, then all of this makes sense. So yes, it did not start with Donald Trump. And I suggest in the book, it's not going to end with Donald Trump. Yeah, it's not going to end with Donald Trump. And I I really, I hate that statement. It's true. Um, I I was hoping maybe in my naivete or uh, hoping, you know, once Trump lost the 2020 election, uh, we could get back to normal, whatever that is. But then January 6th, yeah. And that's no longer an option. No. I'm curious, you wrote this book before January 6th. You wrote it last year. Yeah. Um, did January 6th solidify what you were thinking or, how, or did it change at all what you were, uh, what, what your writings were? Yeah, so I actually, uh, uh, we're talking on June 8th and the new uh, paperback is out today with the new preface, which brings the book all the way up through 2020, through the 2020 election, but I had to send it off to my publisher just before January 6th happened. So January 6th is not in there, but January 6th is clearly the, the kind of uh, the end point here, I think, that that the book is driving towards. And so on January 6th, I sat watching in disbelief along with everybody and yet also not disbelief, right? Because... Um, you know, I, I was really tuned into the the Christian messaging, uh, and not just the uh, the the prayer on the the floor of the Senate and the the Christian signs. Although the one that really caught my eye was the the Braveheart sign, a picture yeah. of uh, you know Donald Trump's face imposed on uh, uh, an image of William Wallace. Um, who's holding up a severed head, uh, right? So, so the imagery was there. It, 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 it certainly does um, track with the story I tell in Jesus and John Wayne to um, uh, horrifying degrees, actually. But it was the, the prayer that I caught, um, it's on video, offered by a group of Proud Boys on their way to the Capitol insurrection that really caught my attention because that prayer could have been offered in any evangelical church on any given Sunday. And when I heard that, I, you know, the, the question that January 6th presents, I think for all of us very starkly is a question that I wrestled with throughout this book. What is, what is the relationship between the fringe and the mainstream, yeah. right? The vast majority of white evangelicals were not storming the Capitol. <laughs> I, I, I say that in every interview I give. But what I'm uh, concerned about is the response of ordinary evangelicals to those events. And what I saw, I was watching very closely, is initially a lot of denial. That's not us. That's Antifa. Okay, then then that kind of went away. And that was led by Franklin Graham on Facebook. And then um, and and it it went everywhere uh, in evangelical circles. And then um, 
there was a lot of silence, a lot of silence. And I pay attention to silence. And, and then um, when people did speak out almost without exception, it was some sort of um, phrasing of, well, I don't condone violence, but, and then went on to essentially defend uh, the actions. And, um, and so that really uh, is, I think, something that this book speaks to is what is it about white evangelicals? What is it about their value system that um, makes it so difficult for them to actively condemn and to work against this sort of violence? What is it that is actually pulling in them into this other place, which is, well, but, uh, and, and that's really where, where my attention is in this book, the values of uh, militancy, this us versus them mentality, this idea that the stakes are so high right now, but his history shows us the stakes are always that high, right? This militancy always requires this, um, this uh, kind of sense of threat. And then that justifies, it justifies using violence. It justifies to uh, do what needs to be done in order to protect your understanding of Christianity, your understanding of Christian America. Yeah. You uh, you were, you mentioned this today, January 8th is the day your book comes out on paperback. And so again, let me thank you for taking the time this morning, what's going to be a really busy day to record this interview. And uh, so this is, this will air on Monday. So buy the book. It's out on paperback today. You joked on Twitter that uh, what's the advantage of, of publishing this book on in paperback is that when you throw it across a room, it'll cause less damage. Yes. I get what you're saying. Um, <laughs> because I, as I was reading this, I found it uncomfortable at several points. I grew up in uh, the world of fundamentalism. Uh, you mentioned guys like uh, Bob Jones and Jack Hiles in your book. That's that's kind of my background. In fact, Jack Hiles helped start the church um, I grew up in, and then eventually, I, you know, I kind of spun the uh, uh, the spectrum a little bit. I graduated from uh, a degree from Liberty University, as well as an, another uh, fundamentalist background. So I'm reading this with fascination because you're kind of coming from this from the other side of what I'm used to, yeah. and um, I'm reading through this and I'm. I don't like a, what, a lot of what you say, but I can't argue with a lot of what you say. And it really um, convicted me as I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to put dots together that I hadn't put before. So I, I'm wondering, to a guy like me, to a conservative evangelical, uh, complementarian even, what do you hope someone like me gets from this book? Mm, that's a really good question. So, you know, I, I'll say when I... I wrote this book. I, I went outside of Christian publishing. I went with a secular trade publisher. And um, so the book is not the primary audience for this book was not, you know, kind of specialized Christian to Christian speaking to evangelicals. Right. Obviously, I really hope that evangelicals would find this book and would pick it up. But and I think they have, that they, have. They, they absolutely have. Yes, to a remarkable degree. Um, but, you know, the book doesn't read in a way it, it's not wooing evangelicals. I think it's right. fair to say. Uh, it has some, uh, I mean, an early reviewer uh, described it as urgent and sharp elbowed. Mm. And I think that gets it just right. And you yeah. can tell from the subtitle on the chapter titles and the tone of the book, I, um, I made it a choice. It kind of came naturally. And then I embraced it to, to not show deference to 
uh, authorities within evangelicalism, because what I saw from my research is just how much damage that had done that the evangelicals for generations have have really taught this idea of authority and of giving deference to the quote unquote God appointed God ordained authorities so women to men men to their pastors and pastors to their the more important pastors and this this chain of command this hierarchy and what i saw is how many times that set up for abuses of power yeah. in really horrifying ways so i think my reaction as a writer was to, to just not participate in that whatsoever and i wanted to make very clear i am not deferring to these authorities um and and so so that explains the tone. Uh, so what what did I hope uh, conservative evangelicals would get from this? Honestly, first and foremost, uh, truth. Right? I really wanted. I did not want to soften these uh, sharp elbows at all. I wanted to tell the story that history tells us as powerfully as possible because I know for a fact that evangelicals have uh, worked really hard to control their narratives, to control the history that they tell themselves. And we all do that to a certain extent, uh, but evangelicals have really... Uh, 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 kind of perfected this because they have uh, what I describe in Jesus and John Wayne, they, they have this expansive consumer culture. They have Christian radio. They have the Christian publishing industry, absolutely massive, right? They have this, this cohesive subculture. They have their messaging that gets out and they, they, um, you know, have this active messaging that says, don't go outside our, our, um, communities for your news, you know, get your news from these trusted sources. Uh, you don't need to read secular publishing, read, go to Christian publishers again, trusted. And that's where you're going to find one story of evangelicalism. And, and it's, it's a story where evangelicals are the heroes, right? And, um, good guys versus bad guys and the culture is against us and we're against the culture and, and we're doing God's work. We're on God's side. God is on our side. And as an American historian, I knew that there's, there's just another side to evangelicalism and, uh, you know, the good things that evangelicals have done, uh, are, are, are worth noting, but that has to be held alongside with, uh, uh, you know, some of the, the darker sides of evangelical history. We have to talk about racism and persistent racism. We have to understand how that is just so deeply embedded within white evangelical communities and culture. We have to talk about not just complementarianism in its kind of most, um, most gracious form, but we have to talk about deep-seated misogyny, about abuse, about abuse of power. That is absolutely part of evangelical history. And we can cannot pretend it is not because if we do, we are going to be perpetuating these abuses. So what I want my conservative evangelical readers to get from this is exactly what you suggested this, just this, an honest engagement of, okay, this is also our story. This is our story. So what do we do next? How do we respond? And, and what I'm seeing happening, which is incredibly, incredibly gratifying is so many conservative evangelical readers are holding this book up against their their faith commitments, right? Their their actual um, ideals. What does the Bible say? Who is Christ? What does it mean to follow Christ? And is this history that is really well documented? I'm going to say, <laughs> is this an expression of those ideals? And where it falls short 
that's where we need to be working right now. And that's where we need to be reforming. And that's where we need to be, you know, ruthlessly self-critical in order to better align our actions, our practices, our witness with, um, with what we aspire to be and believe. Yeah. And as, as an old time fundamentalist, I believe sometimes, you know, in a sermon, you've got to um, stomp on some toes. And as you say, throw a few elbows every once in a while, because we need that. Yeah. Um, and it really convicted me as in, what is my picture of Christ? Is my picture of Christ something that's biblical or something that more resembles John Wayne, the tough guy, the warrior? Because uh, we don't see that in the Gospels. We don't see that in, in, in Paul's epistles either. But somehow yeah. our, our image has morphed into more of, again, I wish my co-host Ray was here, of an Americanized Christianity yeah. um, that has been influenced more by the culture than we're comfortable admitting to. And so exactly. this is really antiseptic. Yeah. And that's, that's where, uh, you know, the, the subtitle of the book, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Um, that first part that how white evangelicals corrupted a faith. Uh, I, I want to be very clear that that that's not a historical claim, right? There's no way his, you know, what does it mean to corrupt the faith that, uh, right. uh, it's, it's my little kind of normative claim as a Christian myself. Um, and I'm speaking here directly to white evangelicals who self-identify as Bible believing Christians, yeah. right? This is like the number one, like, what does it mean to be an evangelical to uphold the authority of the scriptures and pattern your life after that? And yeah. I know that, right? And so this is me speaking directly to Bible believing Christians and, and, and saying exactly what you were suggesting, you know, wait a minute, this, these ideals, these are not actually biblical, right? They're not scriptural. Um, and, and, and I, I demonstrate that in so many very specific, uh, cases in this book. So teachings like turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy. You know, these are explicitly rejected as not relevant to our moment. Things like the fruit of the spirit, you know, yeah. where do those play into uh, this uh, rugged ideal of warrior masculinity? They don't. They, they don't. And so that's why we see evangelicals going outside of Christian tradition to find their ideals of Christian masculinity. You know, William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, John Wayne, or even you could say Donald Trump. Um, you know, paradoxically, it's it's men who have not been formed through traditional Christian virtue, you think fruits of the spirit, right? Who are the best example of this warrior masculinity, right? So you're bringing in these secular models into uh, into your conception of what does it mean to be a Christian man? And then what ends up happening is that transforms not just Christian masculinity, but it has to transform Christianity itself because we see the Jesus of the gospels being actively transformed into this warrior Christ. And so somebody like Mark Driscoll can describe Jesus as, you know, this, this rugged warrior with tattoos down his leg, who's, uh, you know, holding a bloody sword and charging into battle and that's Jesus. And so what does it mean to follow Christ? It means to pick up your sword and charge into battle. Right. Yeah. You mentioned one, one section of the book that the, the sermon on the Mount isn't going to play well in the defense department. Um, <laughs> And yeah, it, it's something, if, it, again, as an evangelical, as a uh, conservative, I do believe in the errancy of scripture. I do believe in the Sermon on the Mount, that it has to, that has to affect how I think of Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels 
is just simply not the warrior we want him to be at times. Yeah. And uh, that's convicting. And, and again, I think as history is at this point coming to an age where we are starting to see and to bring to light a lot of the problems we've just kind of accepted in the past. The Me Too movement being a great example of that, which is, I, I think as a Christian, I ought to be in favor of because no, this is not acceptable anywhere in scripture and people who are doing this need to be called out. And we've seen, you know, since the 1990s, uh, a, a lot more light being brought to big name pastors. Um, and even now we have still, it seems every day there, there's some sort of, uh, in the age of the internet, nothing's a secret. Exactly. And we should be embracing that because that's a yes. good thing. But it is evidence, as, as again, as you, as you lay it throughout the book in a very powerful case, this has been a pattern, not simply an aberration here, an aberration there. Exactly. This, we have to look at the fruit of our theology. Yes, exactly. And and yeah, the, the last chapter of the book is called Evangelical Mulligans, a History. And it, it really is a devastating uh, chapter that just traces one after another, these, these horrifying instances of abuse in evangelical spaces. And uh, what I will say is um, first researching and writing that chapter was incredibly difficult to sit with the stories of survivors um, and to, to try to get those stories right. It was, it was incredibly difficult. Every time I was you know, editing this book, I would kind of work my way through the book, almost done, and then just come up against that last chapter and just, just need to brace myself and then, and turn the page and, and, and go on. It's, it's really rough reading and it was rough. Um, to write it. Um, but what, what I realized is, uh, you know, it, the acts of perpetrators, and there are a lot of perpetrators, pastors, leaders, all right, within evangelical circles who, who have done horrific things, uh, abusing women and children, um, horrifying. But what was in some ways even more disturbing, and, and this has also been borne out by uh, the, the voices of survivors, is the way in which quote unquote good Christians, you know, respectable evangelicals, members of their community, their churches, their families, end up defending those perpetrators, defending horrific acts of abuse. They end up blaming the victims. They end up, uh, you know, uh, just just uh, uh, tacitly condoning the abuse, propping up these men of power uh, for the sake of protecting the man's ministry, protecting the witness of the church. And this is not an aberration, right? This is not one yeah. or, or two times. This is a, a, just a repeating pattern over and over again. You see this. And so what happens is, I mean, this it's, it's clearly, it reflects a culture um, and it perpetuates this culture. And that's what we're seeing today in, you know, Russell Moore's letter um, or two letters now yeah. about uh, what's going on within the SBC. This, too, not an aberration. This is what evangelicals have done. This is what they've been doing. And this isn't just because all humans are sinful, right? I'm a Calvinist. I can say that. Yeah. Uh, but we can also see historically how very specific teachings about sexuality and about gender and about power set the stage 
for these practices, teachings that, you know, men are, um, because God's filled with them with testosterone, men are naturally, naturally kind of, uh, they have a, a natural, um, sex drive and it's, it's almost irrepressible. And, and so it's up to women to really protect purity and women who are not married, um, through their own modesty, through not tempting men, it's on them, but women who are married, it is totally on them to fulfill their husband's every sexual need. And so you see, and this is in, in Christian sex advice manuals for decades, this is the story. And, and so you see these cases where even, even when a man is guilty of abusing a child, uh, the child can be accused of seducing him, or in many cases, his wife, is accused of not meeting his sexual needs. So what, you know, what choice did he have? And then you also see, you know, this long history of, of propping up patriarchal authority of this masculine authority and, and the combination of teachings on sexuality and deference to authority does create a culture that is um, both conducive uh, uh, to abuse, but in particular, I think makes it very difficult for evangelicals themselves to call out that abuse and to do the right thing. Um, and, and, and so honestly, I mean, I, I wrote the book. Um, um, I knew that last chapter had to be in there, but more than once I did ask my editor, do I, does this really have to be here? This is really, you know, do I have to, and he's like, it does, it does have to be there. And it's important that it's there, but the fact that that chapter in particular has stayed so timely, you know, week by week, as you say, the stories keep coming out and you see these patterns just repeated. Um, and it's, it's devastating. And, and it is a huge problem that, that evangelicals need to tend to, and need to take extremely seriously. And some are, but many are not. You know, there's a statistic out there that says that one in four women have been the uh, victim of some sort of abuse. And I remember thinking as a younger person, you know, that, that's going to be made up because uh, the people would define abuse differently. But the older I get and the more people I, I come in contact with, I realize that's probably a conservative estimate. Yeah. Um, and that's not out there. That's in here. That's within the, even the evangelical church. And that needs to be brought to light. So I'm glad that you wrote that chapter in, in the entire book as well, um, because this needs to come out. We need to deal with this. And as a complementarian, it's hypocritical for me to talk about protection yeah. Yeah. if I'm covering up everything. Yes. And so that needs to be exposed. It needs to be exposed. So to my fellow uh, complementarians, my fellow conservatives, this needs to be exposed. Get this book and start having conversations with people um and you're gonna find um this there's a dark underbelly that we don't want to talk about that is slowly but surely coming out and we've we haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg i'm convinced when it comes to these issues yeah so kristen i want to thank you for coming on the podcast today thank you for writing this book i don't agree with every conclusion you come to i mean we come to this from different traditions and different uh viewpoints but you, you write a compelling case, a fascinating story, and uh, I want to encourage everyone to get this and get the, the paperback version is out today. Yeah. Uh, we'll have a link to that. Uh, so, Kristen, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your engagement. Thank you for this conversation. And, and, and just thank you for your gracious uh, and, and uh, gracious reading of this book and, um, and for, um, for engaging the conversation. I really appreciate it. 
And again, the book is Jesus and John Wayne. You can get this. We'll have the link to it on our website, which you can check out at www.basicbiblepodcast.org. And uh, you can check out our, our blog there, which at some point will be updated. And uh, check us out on Twitter at Basic Biblecast, also on Instagram, the same handle. So until next week, have a great rest of your week. <laughs>